We're in Psalm 2. And not long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, I went through a series, I think it was in the evening service, on um, Messianic Psalms. And this is a Messianic Psalm. It deals with Christ, the Anointed One, the prophecy concerning about a thousand years before Christ would come to this earth in Bethlehem uh, and, and show up there in Bethlehem's manger. Um, you have really the prophecy concerning the Anointed One or the Messiah. Uh, the Christ. And Psalm 2 is one of those psalms that it's aptly placed in the scripture because you come to Psalm 1 and it talks about the blessed man and uh, who is that blessed man and it's one who will meditate on the things of God and plant his roots deep in the things of God. You come to Psalm 2 and we see uh, really an invitation and uh, it's a psalm that deals with not only uh, prophetic about the coming of Christ who he is and what he's like, but also his plan for the whole world. And this is really Psalm 2, the world's um, plan according to God, all wrapped up in just 12 verses. And we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to begin in verse 1, reading down to the end of this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Lord, we come before you recognizing your word, your word that has been recorded for all these centuries. And Lord, it has come to us today, once again. What a blessing to be able to open the Bible. We pray now you'd open it to our hearts and minds. May the Holy Spirit have his way among us today and in our lives. And may we be people that put our trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You have here um, God's plan for the nations. And if you want an outline, this song or psalm, it, it was a song that was sung um, it was, it's broken out into stanzas, uh, this poetic form, and different voices that appear in this psalm. And the first one is the voice of the nations, and that's what the psalm starts off with. It says, why do the nations rage, or in the Old English, heathen rage? It's the same word for the Gentiles, the nations outside of Israel. And why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And I I would just say this, that today in our world, if you were to scan the headlines this morning, and they haven't changed a lot in the times of, well, from the time of David all the way to the time of now, 
there have been kings and leaders of nations and they have been sitting around and they have been raging against God. And that's really how this psalm opens. It opens with a voice that is a voice that says, I don't want you, Lord. And people and nations plot that. That's, by the way, the, the natural tendency for man, for, for humanity, as we go away from God, we become more and more rebellious against God. And it's a very dangerous thing. And he starts off talking about this. It is sort of a, uh, just a question that goes out there. The question is answered, sort of. It's answered in the sense that what God will do. And we'll talk some more about that. But I'm reminded that there are leaders today in my world that think they're very, very important people. And they think the decisions they make today and the, the maybe good or bad decisions that they make are going to change the world and keep the world uh, at bay you know and all of those things and there are various leaders that have done that if you look out at the headlines as i said you kind of a scary world we live in today isn't it you know you have wars and certainly rumors of wars and matthew 24 talks about that those are all things that i think will come to be before the lord comes again and in the prophetic plan of things, I, I still believe those times of his return are at least seven years out from any given time. And I can talk to you more about that later if you want. But I would say we're seeing things transpire in our world today that I think is making the world ripe for judgment. And I do believe God will deliver his true people out of that before judgment. But I do believe that Christ and the nations, well, he has a plan for all of this. And in the end, it's him ruling. And this is what this psalm talks about. But why do the nations rage? And the word rage is just that. Why do they get all stirred up? Why are they angered? And we are living in a world where it seems more and more that leaders are setting themselves against the Lord. And they're setting themselves in a direction that is against God. And it is a vain thing we are reminded of in that. I think people would do well, leaders would do well, to stop and take counsel of the Bible and to learn those things. Um, I remember when uh, Dr. Billy Graham died, and actually before that, even his biography had come out, and those things in that he talks about his times that he he was really privileged and that he... He met with, um, I believe, every president up through Barack Obama and, um, and, you know, had met before with others. And, you know, many of them sat down and listened to him and asked him questions. Some of those conversations will never be known because he kept them very confidential. Others he shared a little bit about all the way from Truman all the way up, JFK. Uh, John F. Kennedy sat down with um, Billy Graham, and it was reported in the media at the time for two hours. And actually, it was eight hours he sat down with him. And and for eight hours, uh, the president asked questions and had a conversation with Billy Graham. Billy Graham says one of the things he regretted the most was the week before John F. Kennedy was killed, he, he received a phone call from the president and the president said would you come again to the white house and and uh, billy graham said i have a terrible cold i don't think it's good to go there and expose you to this and uh, he said i didn't go and he always regretted that because he felt that john kennedy had some under and by the way the things they talked about were things about the prophetic 
layout of scripture and what the return of Christ. And it was President Kennedy who said, my church doesn't teach that about the return of Christ, but he said, tell me more about it. I want to know about that. And Billy Graham laid out that to him. You may or may not agree with, I know Billy Graham's name over the years has, among fundamentalists has been, you know, up a lightning rod here and there. And all that. I say the man was a, a preacher of the word of God, and he kept it very simple, and uh, God used him in his day to that. But you know, people would do well to be like John Kennedy and stop and take note of the world that was going on back then in the 60s and has not gotten any better since then and learn more about the Lord and his prophetic plan for the nations. He asked this question, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The word for plot there, it means to think on or meditate. It's actually the same word that is translated in Psalm 1, when we get to it here, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates. That same word meditate in Psalm 1 is plot in Psalm 2. Meditates day and night. You know, our thoughts dictate our actions. They will tell you that. Any, any counselor will tell you that. Apart from, you know, just worldly psychology or whatever, the makeup of our mind produces our actions. It just does. And if you are meditating on the law of God and the things of God, it will produce a life that is, I believe, passionate for God. Someone who wants to serve him. Someone who wants to obey those are the ways. Or, as the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, you can plot and imagine what is a vain thing. There are people today who are saying, how can we overthrow God? And they are attempting to do that. And it is absolutely vain. It is empty. Can you imagine? I think of it, my dad taught me how to wrestle. All right, And when I was just a little guy, like three years old, probably earlier than that, just as soon as, and boys do this, before they're even, you know, they're just walking. They learn to wrestle with their fathers. I don't know if you had sons or, or whatever, they, they're like that. And sometimes the girls too will wrestle, don't they? But I remember that I would go up and I'd say to my dad, I'm going to get you this time, you know, and we would get in a wrestling match. And I, I didn't ever get the best of him until later on when I was well into high school. One day I got the best of him, a little bit, and... Um, he was in law enforcement. He, he knew some moves I didn't, and, and his moves hurt when, when he, you know. And uh, I knew when it got to that point where he was hurting me big time, you know. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to wrestle Dad anymore. And, and he learned that he's not going to wrestle me anymore because it might not turn out well. But, you know, I think of that as a toddler coming up to my dad and wrestling him and saying, I'm going to get you. Can you think my dad was worried about that? No. I tell you, he wasn't worried a bit. Do you think God today is worried about the strongest man on earth saying, I'm going to overthrow you? Or the most powerful ruler of our world today saying, I'm going to overthrow you? Or how about Satan himself, who's called the God of this age, the God of this world? Do you think Satan will overthrow the Lord? No, it is a vain and empty thing to even imagine that. And my friends, the Lord is fully in control 
He is the ruler of all, and he will set his king on the throne. That is a promise for that. You have this voice of the nations. Why? (laughs) Why? Why? Because they don't like what God has laid out. They imagine those vain things. He says, why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. The word for set means to set firmly. And they try to set themselves firmly. The only problem is that we can never set ourselves firm enough. Later on, there's another a throne that is set. That set is a permanent throne. This set right here is really a temporary. There are people that are very strong, and, and they are world leaders or dictators, sometimes tyrants, kings, queens, some better than others. And they might set their throne, and yet their throne comes to an end when their life comes to an end. And we're reminded of that, of the frailty of people and the shortness of life. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Everybody will stand before the Lord in that regard, having their sins judged either at the cross by Christ already, and having the righteousness of him, that's what believers have, or standing in your own sin before the righteous judge who gets it right 100% of the time, all the time, forever. The rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord, against his anointed, that's Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You know, that is the ultimate plot that is going on today in the world. We want to take those chains off. We want to take what, and they sometimes will say, you know, that, that what religion puts on us or what Christianity and specifically puts on us. We don't want that kind of lifestyle. You wonder why there's so much hatred that has arisen since that? Why every institution that is of God is under attack? Every institution. You take the home, marriage, marriage is under attack. If we can do away with marriage, and and that is very much happening in our society today, many people say, why even be married? There's been so much problems in marriage, and it's just a very old-fashioned institution. Why would we do that? God's, or why don't we just redefine it, right? Redefine marriage entirely. That's been going on for decades now in our nation. How about war? Just creating war for war. Sometimes for economic gain, for other reasons. Crime. Not punishing crime. That's a big one. We live in a world today, it's like you say, well, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And one thing is that if you commit crime, you should be punished for that. And uh, there are people saying... No, we can't do that. Where, what kind of worldview did they come up with from that? It isn't a biblical worldview. How about speaking evil and slander? Slander is a big one. Wow. Throw that off. Why should I be truthful and honest about somebody, even someone I don't like? <laughs> well, listen, we live in a world of slander. Don't be part of that kind of world, right? How about a world where... There's so much prosperity and yet such poverty at the same time. And Jesus didn't come to make us all prosperous in this material wealth or anything like that. But why? Why are those things there? And the bottom line is it comes back to really man setting himself apart from God in those things. 
How about we just say, we'll redefine sexuality. We'll redefine very basic biology. And I can't figure that out right now. How we can stand there, people stand there, and they redefine biology. That doesn't make sense. And then you take that and, and you know, you see what took place this week at Dodger Stadium and others. And I, I sometimes wonder, and I see it's the epitome of what Psalm 2 talks about. I won't even give them credence, but the, the trans nuns or whatever they were that were at Dodger Stadium honored as heroes of the community, by the way. Part of their their display that they do and all that is pole dancing on a cross. Figure that out. Yeah. We've traded heroes for absolute abhorrence. May God have mercy, and I mean that. May God have mercy on us as a nation, on our communities, on on people who are engaged in sin. And God have mercy on us as a church (laughs) who are willing to put up with that. Don't do it. The answer, by the way, is the gospel. As the word of God permeates the heart, it pushes this stuff aside. And God is the God of truth in spite of what everybody else is saying. (laughs) And I I could hobby horse on a whole bunch of things there, but those are big ones that are in our news right now. How about the Ten Commandments? Throw those things off, right? The Ten Commandments. I, I realize you can never be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. You, you won't. And the Bible says that. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? But by His grace, He saved us. And that is through faith in Christ. I can't keep the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are perfect. The Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. You say, how does the law convert the soul if it doesn't save? Not Because I just said that, right? It converts us by telling us that we're lost sinners. And if we're lost sinners, we need a Savior. And the law doesn't tell you how to be saved. It tells you you need a Savior. And the rest of the message, which comes in after that, right, of the Bible, before and after, God says this is how to be saved. Be reconciled. Be redeemed. Bought back from the law. Bought back from the consequence of sin. People would like to take the Ten Commandments and throw those out. After all, it's old-fashioned. Old-fashioned to say you shouldn't commit adultery. It's old-fashioned when you say you shouldn't steal. Doesn't everybody steal? Hmm. What What about keeping no other God or having no other God before the one true God? Oh, wow. In a world of David's day, which was polytheistic, and Moses' day before him, all these different gods God the true God speaks out and says have none of them how we're bringing those things back in and I would encourage fathers today men stand up for what is right and good and wholesome in our world today there's a lot of pain in our world and none of those things I could go down through every every one of those commandments and I could just tell you that that as we get further, further, further away from those things, the more we live in a scary society because it is bringing about 
a godlessness in so many ways. This is interesting because in Psalm 2, you see this progression of evil that takes place. The first thing is there's unrest. Unrest. Why do the nations rage, right? There's all this unrest that goes on in our world today. How about murmurings? They plot together and say, hey, let's take these bands or these chains and throw them off. And then there's defiance. They set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. And then there's just open rebellion about it. And I've seen in my lifetime how that has really shifted. Where there was things that just, even if unbelievers, people that wouldn't ever darken the doorway of a church, they still wouldn't do things in polite company that they knew were wrong. They had that sort of moral bearing that even society had pushed on them from outside. And now today it's just the opposite. And I, I half expect sometime if kings continue, you will find people walking through this door simply to disrupt church services. And I don't look for that. We're not a big target probably. But I wouldn't doubt that that would happen. It would not surprise me one bit because it's happening all across our land today. In the book of Acts, Psalm 2 is quoted. And in Acts chapter 4, you have this account. This is Peter as he's addressing the Sanhedrin. They're the religious rulers of the day. Um, and he addresses them and says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the great things in dangerous times and scary times and all that. And I think the first century church understood those times. They lived in a world that was contrary both from the religious side of things from the world side of things in every way contrary to the point where so many of them laid down their lives as martyrs, as a witness to the faith. And here Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, we need more Holy Spirit men filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says this, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, he's speaking to the rulers. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. Of course, there would have been a great miracle that had taken place, and they got him upset. Isn't it funny how people get upset over a miraculous deliverance? I think of that, and I've seen it in, in my lifetime, where I have met people who came out of, for instance, a life of addiction, and a life of just a mess that sin had made it. They become Christians, they're saved, they're delivered out of it, and they've got parents and others mad at them. Mad at them, why, why would you do that? Why would you go that way and follow that way? Yeah, it only delivered me from my sin. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we think sometimes, right? The elders of Israel should have known better. They had the word of God, they had the prophets, they had the Messiah among them. And listen, They saw the miracles of God. By what means he has been made well. Let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. He's quoting. Which has become the chief cornerstone 
Nor, and I jump ahead to verse 12 here. He says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, that's the gospel wrapped up in a verse. My friends, there is salvation. There is no other salvation, no other way except through Jesus Christ. And otherwise, other than that, we grope haplessly in darkness as we just try to figure our way out and you'll never find your way because you're in darkness. But Jesus is the light. He's promised that. And here's Peter boldly declaring that Jesus Christ is the only way. And my friends, I'm glad that we can still boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way. And look what it says here. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled. Some of the, the most wise people I've ever met, and I say that, you know, um, I've, I've met a lot of people and teachers I had and preachers that I had um, in my life were people that weren't trained very formally, you know, in the sense of they went through, you know, years of schooling and those kind of formal education. They were trained in the Word of God. They had the Bible and they knew it. And know it. And my friends, if you know this book, you can silence kings sometimes. Very simply. And I say silence them or maybe make them mad. That's what happened here too. The word of God is the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is also called the wisdom of God. If you know him, you know the wisdom of God. But they were uneducated, untrained men. And they marveled. How could these men recount the things of scripture and quote from the psalms and make those declarations so boldly and in such eloquence in many ways because if you form the argument that peter has here as he as he preaches and the other disciples as well the apostles as they went out you marvel at the way they did it why because it says here they realized they had been with jesus this is a powerful instrument in the hand of God when someone has been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus recently? Have you spent some time with him? Get to know Jesus. People will marvel at the change that has gone on. They will marvel at the boldness people have. We need more men and women, but men of boldness. I say that as a man to men. We need more people who are willing to be bold in their faith. Not arrogant men, not overly proud men, not people who will go out. But we need men that are out there and they are willing to take a punch on the chin for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it isn't a physical punch, but maybe it is. We need more men that are willing to stand up and to do what is right. And to say what is right. If we had that, we would have a different country today a different land more than anything it would exemplify the lord he goes on in verse 17 i jump down to there but so that it spreads no further among the people let us severely threaten them that's what they were saying here let us severely threaten these men that they don't teach this stuff anymore that from now on they speak to no man in this name see the reaction wasn't oh i like what you're saying the reaction here was no we're going to threaten them. And they made good on those threats in the lives of both 
John and also Peter. Peter would later be crucified. And I'd say this, that God sometimes allows his servants to suffer greatly, but they still did what was right and they stood for it. Today we talk about their heroic action, not against or not about the cowardice of those that persecuted them. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Sounds like recent times. <laughs> hmm. Many, many occasions in our, across our world in the last three years where we saw people that are no longer allowed to do things, even praying silently. Praying silently. Being arrested for that. Look to Great Britain for that. Their courts are working that out, and it looks like they're going to back off on that. But it's for a time. Or not being able to proclaim Jesus as a street preacher in certain places without a permit. Those kind of things. And those that hold the permit won't let you do it. <laughs> what do you do? Hmm. You know. And I'm not saying there's, there's wise ways of doing things. But we live in a world where it's not just as easy and convenient. People are going to pat you on the back and say, that's good, keep doing it. They're going to be in your face saying, don't you dare. And if you do, you will be fined greatly. You may end up in jail for 50 days or more, as some did. Look what it goes on to say. But, now, get this. Don't speak in Jesus' name anymore. But. I love that, that transition of a conjunction of but. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were compelled to speak the things that they had seen and heard. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. My friends, you can't help but speak the things of God when you've been with Jesus. He's powerful. He's mighty to save. He's God. Verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now this is the, uh, I've jumped into this paragraph, but this is now the early Christians who are being emboldened by the Spirit of God, but also the testimony of men like Peter and John and others. And this is what they do. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know, one of the great things about the boldness of people is that it makes other people kind of jump on board too. When one stands, sometimes it just takes that one, they find there are others that are there too. Right? Sometimes there's thousands that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We don't even know it until you take a stand. And they're there. We need men of faith. We need women of faith. We need children of faith who are willing to stand for Christ. Look what he goes on to say. Who by the mouth of your servant David said. Now he quotes, they quote from the Psalms. They break out into a song. That's really what was going on here because this is a group that's that's singing 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Oh, wow. And you jump down to verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose is determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of the Holy Servant, your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You know, I love their prayer. That's what this is. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants safety. How often do we pray for safety? And I'm not against praying for safety. The Bible, Jesus said, when we pray and we go to our Father, one of the things we're to pray for is deliver us from evil. In aspect, we ask God will deliver us from evil men, evil people, evil things, sin. So there is an aspect of safety being part of that because where where you're delivered from evil, it's a safer place. So I'm not against safety. But that's not what they prayed for here. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the prayer that comes off their lips, first is the Word of God out of Psalm 2. Secondly, it is to give us boldness. Give us boldness to proclaim your Word, to speak your Word. That should be our first prayer. Give me boldness. Give me boldness to do what is right in a world that redefines what right is and what wrong is. They've redefined what's good and what is evil. And then he says, by stretching out your hands to heal. Signs and wonders. Listen, when the Lord is at work among people, you will see things that you could not see except it's miraculous. And I mean that in the sense we're not only looking for these like signs of maybe physical healing and those kind of things, but he's, and they're not praying that aspect, but they want to see God show up and do supernatural things. And when we yield ourselves to the Lord, that's what it's like. Supernatural. I better move on. The voice of the Father. The voice of the Father. See, the voice of the nations is one of raging. But the voice of the Father, here we see this one. And it's, uh, it's basically this that he warns us. First of all, verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Now, the Bible has lots of places in it where there's humor. There is. There's humor. And I think sometimes we, as I even said, you know, like, regard to my, my dad, he taught me how to laugh. And I'm glad that, that we're made to do that. We're made to laugh at things. And we're made to have fun and poke fun sometimes, I think. And those kind of things. But that's not the kind of laughter that's here. It's God saying this, you who rage and you who think you are very important because you can move you know, nuclear arms around the globe today and you can do that. Guess what? <laughs> You're nothing. Now, it isn't that they're nothing and that they're, God doesn't do anything. 
He came and gave up the use of his perfections and he became literally nothing for us. I say nothing in the sense that that was the comparison from leaving the realms of glory as the son to condescend, to became, become a man. And as a man, he was subject to every temptation, every trial, every passion, every, um, every hurt, everything that we are. God did that. So when you say God who is in heaven doesn't even care, well, no, that's not true. He came down to us. We could not go to him. He came to us. He who is perfect became sin for me and you. But from the heavenly perspective, there isn't one thing that man can ever do that God sits back and says, oh no, I didn't see that coming. What do we do now? God says, he has a plan. That plan in his sovereign hand continues. He raises up kings, he puts them down, and he can do that with any of us as well. And it says there, and he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Listen, he threatens them. You keep it up and this is where you're going to face. You're going to face God. Wow. And lastly, he warns them. He warns them. Verse 6. He says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I set my king. Now there's a twofold aspect to this of prophecy. Because about a thousand years from this time of this writing the king would be set on Jerusalem's hills, on, on a hill. He would be set on a cross. And that cross would be set in the ground, and his, he would be nailed to that cross, willingly suffering and dying on a cross. And that was part of God's plan. Fully part of God's plan of redemption for sinners and a redemption eventually of the nations. And the second part of that, by the way, is a future prophecy as of yet, And that's when Jesus returns and he sets his feet again on the hill of Jerusalem. Someday he's going to come back. And as the east is from the west, so will the lightnings and thunderings be, the Bible describes it. It'll be a time like none other. And every eye will understand what they're seeing and hearing and who he is. And they who have actually, the Bible says, who pierced him. It says that they will look on him whom they pierced. That's what Zechariah prophesied. First time he came and he was set on the hill, he did so for you and for me and for all that rage against him in our sin. He loves you so much that he willingly allowed sinful man to nail him to a cross. And the second time he comes, he's coming to judge. And oh, you better be on his side. That's <laughs> what he's saying to the world and the world's leaders. Verse 9 of Mark, at the transfiguration of Christ. I think God pulled back the veil a tiny bit there with Peter, James, and John as they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they glimpse the glory of God as no other mortals had seen, except for maybe Moses in that aspect. But it's, it's drawn back. And it says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. That's the voice of the Father directly. Very similar to the voice at the baptism of Christ as well, where a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. He's the Son. We see the voice of the Son, the voice of the Father, the voice of nations, but let's look at this one. It says, 
Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And my friends, you have the voice of the son, a declaration. And we see that, verse 7, God's declaration. And then there's God's intention. His intention is that he will give the nations for your inheritance. And then verse 9, you find that God promises here someday that he will have Christ rule over the nations. The Apostle Paul, in a dialogue when he's at Antioch of Sidia in Acts chapter 13, you read here of his account. And this is what Paul speaks of here. And when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul's telling you his death and his burial was according to scripture. But God raised him from the dead. That's part of the gospel, isn't it? That Christ died for your sins, he was buried, and that he rose again. Paul's preaching the gospel. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad things, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, uh, for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. He quotes from the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. When you come across that word begotten, it's in reference to the resurrection of Christ. Some will say, like, for instance, Jesus was created as a son, like procreation. Like, if you have a son, you know, we're celebrating Father's Day. We have, through procreation, created offspring. You know, that's part of the being a father, just so you know. That's not what is talked about here. Here, the Heavenly Father says, you are my son, And I have begotten you from the dead. God the Son who has always existed along with God the Father, God the Spirit, was the one who was raised from the dead. That's why he's begotten. Well, I could say more, but again, that's what's going on there. And then lastly, lastly in this, the voice of the Spirit. So you have the voice of the nations, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this psalm is perfectly laid out that way. You have an invitation here uh, and a warning as well um, that goes on at the end of this. He says, now therefore be wise, O kings. Be wise. I I would love to just say that to some of our rulers around. You know, I'd like to say to, you know, Mr. Biden, be wise, President Biden. Listen to the, the Lord. Be instructed. You, you judges, maybe judges on the Supreme Court, judges in a, in a federal court or a state court, will you be wise? Judge correctly according to truth? How about you others out there, you world leaders like Mr. Putin or Mr. Trudeau to my north? Actually, he's south of us. Yeah, thinking about it. In latitude. We're further north than most of the population of Canada. But... 
But I say that because God is a God who wants them to be wise. And I could go around the world and name all the leaders of the world. No, I I can't because I don't know them all. But I can tell you this, if I did, and I named them, I could say the same thing. Be wise. The wisdom you have to lead your people is found in the acceptance of the rule of God in your hearts and lives. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the advice that is to be given. Serve the Lord. Serve him with awe. See, I think sometimes even as God's people, first and foremost, we, we've lost the awe of God. Not that we've lost God. You can't lose him. He's not like something contained in a box that you misplaced. But we can lose the awe of who he is. You might ask that in prayer and say, Lord, just stir my heart to be filled with the wonder of God. Because he is a God of wonder. And rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. He doesn't say be sad with trembling or scared with trembling, but joy. Have you ever been so excited you just can't contain yourself? You're shaking with joy. That's what he says you should be like. So excited. So joy. So filled with awe and wonder about God that it, it shows up physically in you. And then he says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Kiss the son. That term of endearment, of kissing, that implies intimacy. It also implies a closeness of proximity. One of the things you can never do in kissing somebody is to do it from a distance, okay? I mean, I realize, you know, maybe you saw your mom and you went, "Ah, Mom, I love you and all that, but there was something else, you know, and sometimes it was the kiss you didn't want, right? You know, I had a grandmother like that, and boy, she would grab a hold of you right by the ears and kiss you on both cheeks and kiss you and kiss you, and you're like, oh, please, you know. But here the implication is this, that you need to kiss the son, you need to be close enough to him to do that. It's one thing to greet him from afar. It's another thing to know him. And in certainly that Middle Eastern tradition and culture, which is still there, and in many parts of our world as well, people greet each other with a kiss. There's a lot of people that you can avoid kissing. But one that you should not avoid kissing is the son. Know him. Kiss him in faith. That's what I say. Kiss him in faith. I think of Judas who kissed the son. His kiss was a kiss of betrayal. He was close in proximity. He had been with Jesus for about three years. He had seen the miracles. He had partaken of the miraculous deliverances of some and the food that was prepared, the money that was prepared, all that stuff he had been part of. And he, instead of kissing in faith, he kisses in rejection. Don't be that kind of person. And then he says this, and you perish in the way. See, there's a time where there will not be opportunity to receive him anymore. It'll be too late I remember those conversations with some people who rejected, out-out rejected the Lord. And then one day I, I, I read in the paper their obituary. And I don't know what they did in between my conversation with them and others. I do remember going in and speaking to one gentleman who was on his deathbed. He was about a day away from dying. And I remember saying, hey, do you want me to tell you more about Christ and all that? He says, no, 
I don't want that. I thought, well, I'm not going to force that on you. He was, he was still a man. He wanted to make his own decision. I, I felt terrible. I said, well, I, I told him, I said, he's the only answer. He had nothing to do with it. He didn't want me to do it. And you know what? He died the next day. You perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. See, God's wrath, when it's kindled even a little, is far greater than we've ever understood any kind of judgment. And then he says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's how this psalm ends. It ends with a blessing. It ends with blessed are all those who trust him. Isn't that great? That God warns us and he implores us, he invites us. But he says there's a blessing for those who will trust him. And I'll just echo that today. There's a blessing if you'll trust him. The the last great invitation of the Bible in the book of Revelation, the final chapter, in Revelation 22, verse 14, says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexual immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Then he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who desire, or thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The Son offers us today to receive him freely. Don't reject him. Because his wrath will be kindled even in a little and it'll be too late for you if you don't receive him. Lord, I thank you for the word of God. And I thank you for this psalm that we've read. And Lord, I thank you that you as our heavenly father love us as no father on this earth could ever do. Thank you, Lord, for those people in our lives that have helped shape us, including our fathers. And Lord, I pray That, Lord, we would be better men, better women and and children to serve you. Whatever age and state of life we're in, that, Lord, we'd be people of faith. Give us boldness to proclaim your word in these days and an awe of God in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.